Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about cyber. I have just got back from California and discovered a lot of things about the future, all the technologies that are going to be changing, the way that we live, that we work, that we relate to each other but also the way that international relations between countries will be changed. And one of the biggest set of issues on the agenda is the whole question about the Internet of Things and how our connected world that's driven by information is increasingly being weaponized and the new tensions that are emerging both at a national level and at international level. And of all the people that I spoke to, the one person who's been thinking deepest and hardest about all these things is Herb Lin, who is a senior research scholar for cyber policy and security at uh, Stanford University, um, and he is at the Center for International and Security Cooperation there, as well as at the Hoover Institution. Um, Herb, why don't we go straight into the topic? Why should people care about cyber? Well, anybody who uses uh, modern technology in any way Uh, is potentially affected by it. The reason that we have uh, information technology right now uh, is that we use information technology to process information. Uh, That is its very purpose. And anything in life, any activity in life, any device in life, any service provided in in life uh, that can use information more effectively uh, is potentially implicated with the use of information technology, therefore. Um, so if you want to have a better toaster, add some information technology to it, and some people will say you'll get a better toaster. You want to have a better car, add some information technology to it, and you'll get a better car. And so now you can't, nobody would say you just add, you know, just add it willy-nilly and, and, do, and, and do something, anything with it will make it better. But they have ideas for how it will make things, uh, adding information technology will make your use of a car or a toothbrush or a toaster or uh, a typewriter uh, more effective. Uh, and so that's why people uh, computerize all of this stuff. Of course, the problem is that information technology works uh, well only when it's not attacked and, and there isn't some adversary who's trying to thwart your use of it. Uh, and since there are many parties in the world with conflicting interests, uh, if I want to do something, there's going to be somebody out there who wants to prevent me from doing it or to make my life more difficult or to punish me for doing it. Uh, and so attacking my information technology is a perfectly natural thing uh, for the other guy to do. And unfortunately, we don't know how to make information technology that is perfectly good against the bad, no, it's perfectly good for you and perfectly uh, useless to the bad. So that's the problem. So we've heard a lot about some of the ways that that's happened because hackers, criminals, terrorists, bad states have, have used uh, the internet and, and weaponized it in different ways. There have been very famous examples like some of the cyber attacks uh, which have been launched by states, by Russia, for example, on Estonia, on on Ukraine, on on Georgia. We know that um, somebody, possibly um, uh, Israel or or Western countries, um, uh, managed to neutralize the Iranian nuclear program with with Stuxnet. We've known that the North Koreans seem to have uh, attacked Sony Pictures as a result of... uh, uh, 
them not liking um, uh, a film around their leader. A lot of people have also heard of fake news and seen interference in elections um, as a result of uh, uh, agencies or individuals linked with different regimes. And most recently, there's been a big uh, fuss about the WannaCry hack, which has uh, closed down uh, both companies and public services in many countries, for example, the, the British Health Service. So when we were speaking, um, it, when I was in, in, in Stanford, you gave me an incredible statistic. You said that you thought that the cost of all of these cyber attacks already before the Internet of Things has started is already at a level where it's equal to the amount of productivity gains that we get from, from uh, information technology. Well, what I, that, that, is, that is the result of one report uh, that was issued, I guess, I think in tw- about two or three years ago, 2014. Uh, and what this report said was that if you just look at the year-to-year costs of the uh, of what cybersecurity breaches cost, uh, protecting against cybersecurity threats uh, costs uh, now, uh, and you um, amortize it again, and you compare it to the costs of uh, to the benefits that you get from information technology in any given year, uh, that those two are about equal at this point, uh, and that, uh, but the, the what I what I hadn't said uh, was that the, uh, the at least this report concluded that the cumulative benefits still all told exceeded the cumulative costs. Now whether that will continue to uh, you know over time, whether that will continue to be true uh, in the future as the costs of cybersecurity uh, responding to cybersecurity problems goes up, that I don't. That's a very different question, and I don't know the answer to to, to, to that. But the point is, we're, I think we're headed in that direction, where there's going to be some rethinking of, of whether it's worth it to put all of the, the to put all of this stuff uh, online. Uh, and, and is it worth the cost? And, and I don't, you know, I, 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 I welcome that discussion. I welcome that debate. So I want to go into that um, uh, in a few minutes. But maybe before we go into that, um, be interesting to hear from you what you're kind of most worried about from a cybersecurity perspective. Is it that this will become the latest battleground between states and, the, you know, the internet will become the continuation of politics by other means to be slightly Clausewitzian for a, for a second? Or are you more worried about the fact that this is something which could be a leveler and empower teenagers in bedrooms, terrorist groups, other non-state actors, criminal enterprises... I think it's, I think the answer is that it's all of the above. It will be a place. I, I foresee an internet in which there are low-level cyber attacks and annoyances uh, that every day, all the time. And we're just going to. My own personal view is. I hope I'm wrong. I think that we're headed for a world in which uh, we are all. Uh, we're all going to have to deal with the consequences of that and learn to live with it. Uh, does that mean we're going to have to be, you know, you know, does that mean we have to relax our vigilance? No. Uh, does that mean we just say give up? No. Uh, but we're going to have getting used to it is going to be some part of it. Just like any person. I live in a city. I have to deal with some degree of crime and, and, and safety that, that uh, some safety issues that I don't uh, have that I would not have to deal with if I lived in, in a rural area. 
But the, for me, the benefits of living in a city outweigh the, the minimal costs that I have to pay as a result of crime. So let maybe just think about that both from a perspective of the individual. So do you think people who get invite Alexa into their homes are completely crazy then? Let me tell you a story. Okay. I don't know. The, I don't remember the brands here, so I don't want to impugn any particular manufacturer. But what the, what happened was that the guy, uh, somebody locked himself out of his house, and uh, he had an inter- He had a uh, a Wi-Fi connected uh, lock on his front door, and he said, "How am I going to get in?" Uh, and he realized that his voice sensitive device i'm not sure what it was uh was in the living room and listening so i just shouted into the room you know alexa or whatever it is let me in or unlock the door and it did is that is that good security uh i i would submit to you the answer is no so you think that the internet of of things can't be made secure for individuals there's stuff you can do like buying padlocks for your bikes and better locks for your doors etc but uh, you you basically it's a pact no, with I the devil I, no i've had bikes stolen with ordinary padlocks too okay and I, I i i have a long trail of stolen bikes behind me that that people have stolen bikes that have no internet connectivity at all yeah okay and what about between countries then? I mean, what do you think the kind of main ways that you can defend yourself are? You know, is this about defensive? Are there things you can do in terms of defensive capabilities? Is this about having uh, offensive capabilities and being able to deter people from attacking you? I and mean, what, what are the kind of range of things that states can do to be safe in this uh, new connected world where cyberspace is uh, a, a massive battleground? Well, I mean, what states are uh, what states are trying to do uh, in in many uh, in, in, in many instances is to try to make themselves as secure as they can, uh, as secure as they can be against uh, cyber uh, against cyber attack, uh, and still figure out ways of exploiting weaknesses in other guys' cybersecurity postures for their advantage. So, so, so from the, from any given nation's point of view. Let's say it's the United States, but it's also true for Russia and China and Israel and anybody else. Okay, the best possible situation is, is one in which my information, our information technology is uh, secure, but yours is the rest of the world is not. Okay? That's the best of all possible worlds from the standpoint of uh, you know, a, a nation state. Okay, now there are, there are colleagues of mine who will argue with this. They say, no, 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 it's better for the United States if everybody's information technology is secure uh, because we live in an interconnected society uh, and therefore we have to, you know, it, that makes a much, what I said initially makes as much sense as drilling a hole in your side of the boat uh, rather than in my side of the boat. Uh, you know, we're all going to go down together is that argument and there is something to that argument but i was just reporting on what i think that the the nation state view of the world is uh and if you think that nation states are going to be around for a long time uh which i do i think that's i think that's inevitable that each nation is going to try to seek to use cyberspace to its own advantage that means both offensively and defensively so how does that work? Because, like, you, you know, lots of people compare the Cold War with the world of today and they talk a lot about um, deterrence. 
But one of the big debates, which I know you've thought and written about a lot, is the whole question of attribution. How do you even, you know, if you do get attacked in the cyber world, it's not always clear where it's coming from, you know, how linked things are, whether uh, this whole question of attribution makes it quite difficult to, to retaliate. But also, if it is as much about the dangers of individual teenagers in bedrooms attacking countries as other countries, then it also makes it much more difficult to, to respond in a symmetrical way. Well, so that's true. Let's say it is a teenager in another country. The, right now, the only method that we have for responding to the hacker or teenager in the other country is to go to that other country's law enforcement agencies and say, please arrest this guy. And if they choose not to or if it's not against their laws, then we're out of luck. So then the question is, what do you want to do about it? And there are things that you can do about it. Uh, so, for example, one of the things that the United States has decided to do is, if we can identify them, we can issue an arrest warrant for them anyway. And then that means that they can't move out of the country where they are, because if they go through a country for with, which, with whom the United States has an extradition treaty, then we can arrest them at the airport. So that makes it very dangerous. We can also try to freeze his bank account. So, for example, if, we, if, if I identify you as the hacker, uh, what I do is I, I, I go to, and, you, and your government won't do anything about it, uh, I go to the banks that you do business with you to supply your checking account and say, you need to freeze the bank account of this guy and, and prevent him from taking any money out and doing any, and making any purchases. And if you don't do that, I'm going to penalize you, the bank. So the bank has a you know, has strong incentive now to, to comply. So that's the kind of thing we can do. But isn't part of the problem that the states can use individuals to do it and then deny you know it, it's a kind of absolutely absolutely yes that's absolutely a, a problem so one of the issues with the russians uh with the russian government although i don't want to just pick on the russian government i think that they do it more than the rest of the world but one of the issues with the russian government is is that the relationship between the russian government and quote private sector or private actors and quote is not always so clear and and, and you know if if somebody does a favor for the Russian government and then the Russian government um, decides to overlook another transgression of theirs, is you know, has this guy worked for the Russian government? I, and I don't care whether it's the Russian government. You know, if I say this is the United States government, too, same kind of issue arises. So how do you deal with those sorts of issues? How do you maintain kind of deterrence and stop everyone from you know, having a kind of perpetual cyber war? I think in the end, you don't. That's my point that I, I think that there's a low level of this stuff that's going to go on all the time and you're not going to be able to prevent it all. So um, two other things I'd, I'd really like to talk about while we're, while we're still here. One is about the, the kind of range of different dangers. And I, I, I was very struck when we were talking before, I was sort of asking you what, what, what you most worried about. Is it some kind of existential risk that, you know, millions of people could get killed by it? Or is it more about um uh information warfare etc it'd be kind of interesting to hear your your um your response to that sure uh in terms of existential uh threats uh there is an existential threat but it's sort of but you have to make an argument for it so it's not let's start over with the with the uh, it's not like it's not like nuclear weapons right it's not like nuclear weapons where the whole world is, you know, where, where you, get, you could have hundreds of millions of people dead in 30 minutes. That's not going to happen with cyber, I mean, ever. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in, in, in stating that categorically, okay? Uh, could there be bad things, you know, seriously bad things? Sure. But it's not of that scale. 
is it like climate change? Yes, you could make the art, you know, make the, 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 you know, a slow deterioration of the nations in, you know, of, of national, you know, of the environment uh, could be comparable to a slow deterioration in our uh, information infrastructure. That's harder for me to, to, to imagine, too. So I don't put cyber in that category of existential threat. But here's the point. I like living in a world of democracies. I like living in a world in which truth matters. I like living in a world in which there's reasoned debate is possible. All of those things. And I could argue very convincingly, I think, that information warfare, and in particular cyber-enabled information warfare, is a threat to the kind of life that I want to live, the kind of life that you want to live. I presume you know you you have you have some reasons for wanting you know for you know you pursue your job at least in part because you value the truth and that matters to you and that people uh understanding the issues for real facts matter to you and i don't want to live in a world that's that's free of fact and truth and and, and so on okay and i think that's the existential threat uh it, th- it threatens society as we know it so that's the concern that i have so you so tell me more about about that. You think that the there's an existential threat not because millions of people could be killed even if countries get shot down shut down and hospitals aren't able to work effectively. You still think that it'll be small compared to what you could get with nuclear weapons or or, or conventional weapons, but that the very future of democracy could be undermined. Not only the future of democracy, the future of enlighten the future of the enlightenment of reasoned debate. And and you think that the future of reason debate and the enlightenment that the what the Google and Facebook and um and Twitter are so powerful that the that they can be hacked in a way that would undermine the enlightenment. It's not hacked in the sense that it's not that their technology is being hacked, okay? It's that they are now being used as vehicles for spreading for, for creating environments in which non-truth uh, fake news, um, etc., uh, can survive and even thrive. But do you think? Because a, a lot of people would argue that there were, you know, fake news is as old as as the news. Um, and in the old yes. days, you couldn't use Wikipedia and Google to 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 check facts. So a lot of these things went unchallenged. Some people argue that the the fact that we're talking about fake news so much is actually a sign of progress. The fact that that these things um, uh, are the same technologies which allow the fake news to, to spread also allow it to be uh, immediately challenged and verified. But that's not how people operate. People don't do that. People get news from sources that they like and trust and they don't check anything. So do you get your news from the internet or do you um, do you just rely on the, the analog world, formerly known as the world, for, for information? Well, frankly, I use the internet for information as pointers to uh sort of real world if you want the if you will analog media but you don't use social media i use uh, what does me what does use mean i have a i have a linkedin account um are you on facebook no and, and why not just because you think it's a waste of time or because you're worried about these sorts of questions of fake news and of security no etc. no no i wouldn't be i'm not worried about fake news coming into me on facebook i i, I because i i don't use facebook because it's a pri- you know for privacy reasons you know why why should you you know what i had for breakfast today okay that's fair enough what did you have for breakfast today i had duck but okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> um okay 
Um, can I maybe just end by asking another question about if if the costs get so high and uh, both from a security perspective, from a convenience perspective, does that mean that people were that are going to start turning the internet and the cyber world into something that looks a bit more like the real world with more borders and more uh, attempts at creating security between different countries in the long in the long run i think that's i think that's inevitable actually i i i you know there are 200 some nations in the world i don't think there'll be 200 some internets in the world but there may be seven or something like that, or, you know, or five or something like that, where different nations with like-minded values will get together. uh, And and the internet, I say, I see the internet as being fragmented along those lines in the future. I don't think there's, I think, and I think that's inevitable. So what would your seven internets be if there were seven at the moment? Well, for example, there would be an internet that that would be, that the Western democracies would be in. And then China and Russia and, and a variety of other countries of, of those, you know, sort of more authoritarian-ish kinds of places were all band together there. Um, the, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, uh, sorry, oh, sorry, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization will start up another one. Uh, and, you know, India might be, uh, I don't know where India would be. Um, Brazil is another open question. We don't know. They might be on the third block or something like that. I don't, I don't. But the point is that there will be enclaves of different rules and different practices. So why didn't that happen after the Snowden revelations? Because there was lots of talk at that stage of the the splinter net, how the internet was going to break into different areas. And well, because the because the internet is very well intertwined with our you know with, you know with with, with uh, the world now. And to go in this direction, would t- would, it would be very costly. I don't mean just financially, although I do mean financially, but not just financially. Uh, it takes a lot of work to do to establish these splinter groups. Uh, but it's happening. I mean, there are people, there are people now who any, any party that asserts national sovereignty as a primary value about, above all else, can you think of any nations who do, um, uh, is working towards that. Okay. Maybe we could end with one final, final question, which is about what, what you think Europe and Europeans should do in this world. Where Because I think Europeans have got particular interests and values. I don't know they care more about uh, privacy than, than Americans do. Um, they uh, obviously have economic interests uh, of their own. And, and there are lots of fears about the, the kind of size and the power of of, of some of the uh, giant companies that are dominating this space. But they also, you know, have, as you say, have kind of different interests from the Chinese and the Russians and in other areas. So if you were advising European policymakers, how, how do you think they should think about the the future of cybersecurity from a European perspective? Well, if, if you're just talking about the privacy issue, uh, which uh, how it relates to surveillance and all those sorts of things, I have to say that I I am personally uh, skeptical uh, about the European position, European position on all this because I I actually think that the Europeans are are EU and so on is is quite hypocritical about all of this. In particular, they complain about all this surveillance and, and so on, and, and they want to impose privacy laws and uh, you know pri- privacy requirements on, on American practices and and so on. And yet, they are the primary beneficiaries of American uh, of cooperation with American intelligence for counterterrorist purposes. 
anything. My feeling would be from the from an American standpoint, uh, this is very much an American standpoint, what I'm about to say. Uh, if you want to cooperate with the United States uh, on counterintelligence uh, and counterterrorism intelligence sharing activities, um, your privacy practice, your European privacy practices have to be different uh, and, and they have to be more friendly uh, towards surveillance. And if you don't like that arrangement, you don't get our intelligence. I, I just don't have any sympathy for, 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 for that. And on the rest of the, the cybersecurity agenda, what do you think they should do? Well, I think the Europeans are, you know, European uh, academics, academic researchers, for example, have some of the world's best work on 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 security, uh, you know, from in, in technical sense. And in the UK, one of the best, you know, one of the best researchers is is located in the world is located at Cambridge University. You should go spend some time with him. Um, uh, a guy by the name of Ross Anderson. Uh, who is at UK Computer Science de Department is one of the gurus of, of, of cybersecurity uh, in, in all of this uh, and is one of the best people around. And he understands the complexity of cybersecurity uh, in ways that few Americans do. So he's really great. So do you have a lot of resources in this? And, and you know, I think that, that you know, you ought to be capitalizing on them. And to, to a certain extent, they do. Great. This has been absolutely fascinating. The, the last thing which we have on our podcast is, is the bookshelf segment where we normally ask people what they're reading at the moment. But what I'd like to do is ask you a slightly different question. You spend a lot of your time educating people who don't understand um, these issues. And uh, if you had to advise, say, two or three books or articles that everyone should read who wants to be as clever or be able to sound as smart about cybersecurity as, as, as you are, as you do, um, what would you tell them to read? There are two books that I would, uh, th that, that I would uh, pass along. One book that I can tell you is available uh, on, uh, online for free in PDF form. Uh, the title of it is At the Nexus of Cybersecurity and Public Policy. Uh, that's a free PDF that you can get. Uh, you just do a search on that phrase. You'll, it'll come up uh, on the National Academy of Sciences Press uh, bookshelf. It's free, free in PDF, uh, and it's you know it's, I, I commend it as a as a primer on basic issues and concepts. Uh, there's another book, uh, Cyber War and Cybersecurity. Uh, it's by uh, Friedman, uh, Singer and Friedman, Peter Singer, Alan Friedman, Cyber Security and Cyber War, what everyone needs to know. That's also a good book. Um, and so those are two, two books that are, you know, are, are, you know put, provide reasonable primers uh, on this stuff. Uh, and those are good places to start. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with your friends and family and anyone you know uh, by giving us a review or a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform it is that you're using to listen to us. And we're going to put links up to all of the books and articles that were mentioned on the podcast at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Herb Lynn and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Bulin Gurmin. Thank you.